All right. Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration and border related issues. I'm Steve Murins, joined today remotely by Diana Okanachoff and Sarah Runyon. And Sarah is a partner with Marion and Runyon, which is a criminal defense firm in Campbell River on Vancouver Island. And she has appeared as counsel before all levels of court in British Columbia, including at the Supreme Court of Canada, which is what we are going to be talking about today. Sarah's recent case where she was co-counsel in RV Zora, which is a case about bail and most specifically the offense of breaching bail conditions. Sarah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, but I need to correct you right off the hop. Runyon. <laughs> Runyon. As I was reading it, I went, uh-oh, I should have clarified this. Um, so the tie-in and what we're going to be discussing today is how bail works in Canada and specifically how um, the offense breaching a, what, what's the short form for this offense? Like what do criminal defense lawyers call it? Just breaching a bail condition or? A breach a breach of bail condition um, works in Canada. The tie-in to immigration is that uh, if somebody has been convicted in Canada of a hybrid offense or has been convicted abroad or committed abroad, an offense that equates to a hybrid offense, then they are inadmissible to Canada for criminality. So understanding the actus reus and mens reus, which are terms that we'll get into, of this offense of breaching a bail undertaking can be important in the immigration context. And I know I've seen on, uh, especially for Americans, the criminal records of Americans will often have an initial charge and then a second charge for breaching a bail undertaking. And so that is the uh, relevance of bail to immigration. So how I thought we'd start this is uh, basically just going through the first few paragraphs of the decision with some specific questions then for Sarah. Um, so why don't we just kick it off with that. So the decision starts with, when, individu quote, when individuals are charged with a crime, they are presumed innocent and have the right not to be denied reasonable bail without just cause. Most accused are not held in custody between the date of the charge and the time of the trial, because the criminal code and the charter typically require that the accused be released on what is known as bail. So I have a few questions from that. The first is, what's the difference between an arrest and a charge? Hmm. So in British Columbia, the only sort of state apparatus that can formally approve charges is the Crown. The police can arrest you and put you into, for example, local lockup. And while you're sitting in that local lockup, they will prepare something called a report to Crown Council. Crown Council will review the police uh, investigative materials and then decide if they're going to approve charges. If they decide not to approve the charge, the criminal process stops. So the police arrest, the Crown approves the charge. So we have we can have several arrests without ultimate charge. And what is the timeline between arrest determination on whether there's a charge? 
you have to be brought before a justice for a bail hearing within 24 hours of your arrest. Uh, okay. So it's not the case that somebody would be sitting there for days or weeks on end in detention while they wait for the Crown to decide? No. And so then an arrest and detention, just for listeners who don't know, what's the difference between being arrested and detained? All right. If you're detained, the police are investigating you. So we usually, when we're before the court, we usually talk about investigative detention versus arrest. So you have to have a suspicion, the police have to have a suspicion that this person is engaged in uh, criminal activity in order to detain them. They have to have reasonable and probable grounds, however, to arrest them. So there, the law enforcement's level of confidence has to be much higher in order to effect an arrest. Okay. And going back, so you said it has to be within 24 hours that they're brought before a justice of the peace. Does that include weekends? Yes. Yeah. That's right. And so often on the weekend, we will have um, telephone hearings. There's always the, the JP Center that functions in British Columbia out of Burnaby. Yeah. And they're available on a sort of, you know, 24-hour, uh, seven-day-a-week basis. And so, and, and Sarah, before you can appear before a justice, there needs to be a decision made as to whether or not Crown Counsel has approved the charge, I presume. Yes. Now, the, the response to that's a little bit, a little bit murky because the, the Crown can, the, the charge approval process is never, in theory, supposed to stop. The Crown is always, in theory, supposed to uh, assess whether there are two things. One, a substantial likelihood of conviction, and two, whether it's intelligent to prosecute. So the, the Crown may decide, yes, at, at this stage we're going to proceed, but you know, perhaps seven days down the road, they should be <laughs> reviewing that uh, charge approval standard again and may decide to to in fact state the prosecution. So it means it remains like a live issue, um, but it has to at least have had a preliminary determination That's before right. that 24 hour review. Yes. Okay. okay. And so continuing with the decision, accused who are not released from custody by the police will be brought before a justice of the peace or judge for a bail hearing. For most crimes, the default form of bail is to release accused persons based on an undertaking to attend trial without any conditions restricting their activities or actions. However, conditions of release can be imposed if the Crown satisfies the judicial official that particular restrictions are required to secure the accused attendance in court, ensure the protection or safety of the public, or maintain confidence in the administration of justice. So, you're at the bail hearing. Did the Crown, in advance of that hearing before the Justice of the Peace, let you know what conditions they plan on requesting? That depends entirely on the individual prosecutor. Generally speaking, if we're dealing with low-level offenders committing low-level crime, no. As a matter of practice, that sort of legwork and communication about what conditions the Crown may seek and what conditions the defense deems appropriate really only takes place when we're dealing with more substantive 
crimes, people with prolific criminal records. So when you're thinking about a busy, a busy sort of remand court, a busy, uh, you know, criminal provincial court, it's very rare that defense counsel has a comprehensive understanding of what Crown is seeking in terms of conditions. And how do you challenge bail conditions if, say, just because of that initial hearing, you, as defense counsel, don't have time to, I don't know, supporting documents from friends or a surety? What, uh, is there a way to challenge bail conditions? Yeah, so the, the starting point should be, as you just indicated in the course of that judgment, that individual is released with no conditions unless the crown demonstrates that certain conditions are necessary. Theoretically, that is how bail courts are supposed to function. That is not how they function in practice. And I'm sure we'll get to this, but the, the majority of the court, well, in fact, the unanimous court just indicated that we sort of revert to that theoretical practice again, because the default position, the starting point is that someone is going to have an abstention clause, a correction, a reporting Where I on the North Island, we deal with a lot of um, remote communities with um, people who are plagued by a lot of the systemic factors set out in leading cases like Gladue and Apili. They don't have access to a phone. They don't have access to a vehicle. They uh, don't have much in the way of financial resources, but the Crown is going to ask and the judge will routinely impose a reporting requirement. So you're living on a remote island and you just have to figure out how you're going to get from Zabalis to Port Hardy to report once a week. And so that is so the, the sort of explanation I'm providing to you now is an explanation that I would provide to the judge. We, we sort of assume that people have access to the resources that we all have access to. And so you often have to pause and remind the judge and in some contexts, the prosecutor of the offender's context. Most of the time, the offender's context is not our context, and that's why they're there in the first place. Yeah. But also, as you argued in the case, this isn't a balance of convenience test. This is a, the onus is on the crown unless they've discharged that duty. Right. Then it shouldn't it shouldn't just go to that just for the sake of, um, you know, for the the comfort level of the prosecutor, right? right? Yeah, and, and it's interesting that we able to really articulate that. It's for the, it's it's like for the sake of what? Yeah. Like, wh why? Why are we having this person report? And it, it's so automatic. Report, reside, curfew, uh, abstention clause, and very rarely does anyone sort of step back and ask, well, wait a minute, why? <laughs> hmm. So what uh, we're going to get now into the facts of the Zora case. I had assumed that this had taken place in Vancouver. But was this a North Island proceeding, or where where would did this actually occur? Yeah, Courtney. Oh, this was on the island. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so this was uh, charged with three counts of possession for the purpose of trafficking um, drugs, and so he was granted bail on his own recognizance. What does that phrase mean? Granted bail on his own recognizance. So that means that he, the judge said, Mr. Zora, you can 
uh, be released from custody, uh, but you need to abide by certain conditions. So, um, and the conditions are going to be printed and articulated on this recognizance, on this document that's going to tell you how you must behave while you're on bail uh, and awaiting your trial on these substantive charges. Okay. And one of the conditions was that his mother would be a surety. So what's, uh, I think I used the term previously, but what's a surety? Yeah, so a surety is someone who is going to monitor the, theoretically, monitor the accused to ensure compliance with his bail conditions. And the job of the surety is to render the accused if they believe that the accused is about to breach or has breached a condition of his or her bail. And if the surety fails to advise, for example, the RCMP of a looming breach or a breach, that the prosecution can go after the surety for a sum of money. And so when, for example, um, the judge names a surety, the, the judge can also specify uh, an amount, $500, meaning, okay, Mr. Zora, your mother, if she doesn't uh, do all the things that we expect her to do as a surety, uh, and you breach conditions of bail, well, you, you have to know, Mr. Zora, that we can go after your mom for $500 for failing to um, properly monitor you. Wow. And does, does the court get to choose who that surety is? Or does that somebody, does that person get put forward by the accused? Yeah, the, 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 the person is put forward by the accused. Wow. And so in this case, there's 12 bail conditions that are imposed on him. And they are keep the peace and be of good behavior. Report to his bail supervisor. Remain in British Columbia unless the bail supervisor is all rules and regulations of his residence. In company of his mother or father or a person approved by his parents. himself at the door of his residence within five minutes of the peace office. Not possess controlled substances, not possess drug paraphernalia, not possess cell phone, attend residential treatment facility if he consents and not possess a weapon. That's a lot of condition. So is that, and I wanted to talk about a few of these specifically, but is that normal for a drug trafficker to, for example, not be able to a cell phone until, I guess, like charges are dropped or there's a trial? Totally normal. Happens all of the time. So, honing in on that, like, just how long does it normally take? Like, how long could these, I'm keeping in mind that he's innocent until proven guilty. How long a period would he is expected to not have a cell phone? We have a relative, I guess not that recent anymore, the Jordan decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, which tells us that the effective ceiling, um, the, the time in which a matter happens trial convention court is 18 months and in superior courts 30 months so it can take up to 18 months in provincial court for Mr. Zora to get to trial or up to 30 months in supreme court for Mr. Zora to get to trial 
And in certain situations, it's often longer. I would say, generally speaking, on the North Island, so in the jurisdiction where this case drives, a year is a is a safe bet. A year, so not a lot of cell phone. And then this one, obey all rules and regulations of his residence. What does that mean? Like, what is it? Is it like an air? Like, are we talking about a strata? Or are we talking about if he lives with his parents, just what his parents say? Or yeah, in this case, he was living with his parents, and the uh, judge wanted to ensure that Mr. Zora was not engaging in criminal activity in or around the household. Uh, and he, he was advised by the surety that they don't tolerate that kind of activity in or around the household. And so I suspect that the, the judge believed this was a way of reinforcing that that activity not occur. Yeah. So uh, mom says you have to be, you know, theoretically mom says that you have to, uh, <laughs> in the bathroom twice a week and that's a rule of your residence well you can be prosecuted for you know not cleaning your the, the bathroom twice a week because your mom you know indicated that she wanted you to do that but so that's conditions yeah these conditions sound very similar to like a conditional sentence order like he's basically under house arrest during yeah. this time in the sense that he can't leave except in the company of that appointed surety yes yes and maybe you can describe, I mean, I have it in the case in front of me, but what did he do that led to him being charged with each of the bail conditions? What did he do that led him to be charged with breach? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, so not the substantive offense, but the failing to present himself at the door piece. Is that what we're... The failing to yeah, present okay. himself at the yeah. door piece. Yeah. Right. So it, as a condition of his bail... He not only had to obey a curfew, but when the police came to his door to monitor his compliance with that curfew condition, he had five minutes to present himself at the door and make clear to the officer that he was abiding by the curfew. There were two occasions over the Thanksgiving long weekend, and I believe in 2015, where he didn't attend at the door when two separate police officers attended to monitor his compliance. And for that reason, not, not because he was allegedly out committing crime, but simply because he did not within five minutes come to the door, the prosecution uh, pursued a breach charge. Yeah. Didn't they establish that he was home? It was just he didn't hear the police knocking or? Yeah, the, the trial judge stated that there was an absence of evidence to indicate that he was outside of the residence. And that's, that's as far as the trial judge went. So there's there there was nothing that the, the trial judge could rely on to say that yeah. he was anywhere other than his room sleeping. Yeah, I think it's um, his bedroom was downstairs, on, according to the, in the Supreme Court judgment. The, uh, oh yeah, that. He was just, yeah, so there is no, the, basically the charge is he breached his bail condition by not getting to the door within five minutes. Yeah. And this was at, what, 10.30 at night. Yeah. So it's funny because, yeah, I'd assume that this was Vancouver, but, like, 
the is it common for police i guess to go to someone's house to monitor whether they're home on a nightly basis it's common throughout the province it's common throughout canada yes happens all the time all the time and and you know and i'll just I'll, I'll pause there to emphasize that that causes a significant amount of disruption depending on who's in the home so imagine that you know someone has the opportunity let, let's say an otherwise homeless person has the opportunity to go and live with um another member of the community who has young children is that member of the community who's offered to take that person in to monitor his bail conditions going to be pleased by the fact that they've got a law enforcement officer knocking on their door at maybe one two three in the morning to monitor this guy's compliance when they've got young children probably not and it happens all of the time <laughs> yeah it's uh, such an know, like, it's like a significant amount of resources dedicated to because how many people are out on bail like, is it is there do you know a stat on how many people are out on bail in the province it, i don't know the if there if there are actually any stats available that tells us how many people are, are out on bail in this province at any given okay. moment but um oh that's what i was going one of one of the sort of submissions that we made and that we we make often is this can you imagine if we devoted all of um (laughs) the financial resources that we put into monitoring compliance with these conditions into other areas that were really going to address the underlying criminogenic factors like mental health uh, services addiction services it would be tremendous. And I think the the other part of this that I can't help but throw in is that there is a massive racialization of the population that is going through the criminal court process. And just, I mean, especially what we're seeing going on in our communities these days, um, what this means is that there's a very unwelcome present, uh, presence of law enforcement in these communities on an ongoing basis. It doesn't exactly foster this sense of um, cooperativism or, you know, it really does send the the wrong message. And um, these resources could be so differently um, dispatched. You know, it's kind of, it does make some sense of this whole defund the police kind of rhetoric that we tend to hear. And I, I shouldn't be calling it rhetoric, but you know what I'm saying? I absolutely, I absolutely agree, yes. Yeah, yeah. Wow, this is very illuminating. And so do these conditions, like what are some of the other conditions that you've seen, uh, not in this case, but in other cases that you think, you know, people might be surprised to know that that's imposed on people who have yet to actually be convicted of an offense? People in the active throes of a drug addiction who can't use drugs people who are addicted to alcohol, who can't consume alcohol, people who are homeless, who have to abide by curfew conditions, people who live in remote communities with, as I indicated, no phone, no transportation, who have to somehow make their way to a probation office, sometimes two, three hundred kilometers away on a weekly basis. Uh, Someone who is street entrenched and their only source of social support is the person they got into a minor physical altercation with and there's a no contact condition well they they're homeless on you know one particular in one particular center the chances that they'll run into each other are pretty high just as a matter of happenstance 
and uh, with the homeless, like, is the expectation with the curfew just that they have to? Is the expectation they'll just check into a shelter, or how are they supposed to comply with? That's a fantastic question, and that's and so going back to the to the previous point of you know, well, or question, how do you how do you sort of counter the the crown's proposal when they're asking for certain conditions? We we try to highlight just that. Well, what do you expect this person to do? They don't, they don't have a door that they can shut. They don't have a residence that they can go to. They don't have a phone that they can use. And oftentimes it's just sort of contextualizing that person and that person's experience. And we forget to do that because who's presiding over these matters? Generally speaking, these very privileged people. And the fact is you can't check into a shelter. Like that's not a that's not a thing in British Columbia, at least not in my experience. Like even somebody who's fleeing abuse in a relationship, they can't just check themselves in. These spaces are not just sitting and waiting and available. Um, you might get a bed for a night, but there's no guarantee they'll let you back the next night. So right. that's right. not a thing, at least it's, not in Vancouver. Um, I'm sure it's even worse in the remote communities. Right. So if you're thinking about Campbell River North, we've got two shelters. That's it. Right. So and some of the other ones, Supreme Court decision are uh, limiting where someone can go in a city, requiring compliance with random searches and even restricting right to freedom of assembly. With that last one, do you know what they're referring to? Just like don't attend protests or. Oh, I think interacting with um, particular unsavory, you know, groups or. Um, wow. Yeah. So is your experience, Sarah, that when when bail conditions get imposed, like there's kind of a weariness among criminal um, lawyers where there's there are people aren't even challenging the conditions or it's that people are challenging them and those challenges are falling on deaf ears at the first instance courts? Yeah, defense lawyers don't challenge them nearly enough. There's mm. there's this sort of um, acceptance like, OK, Crown's willing to release this person. I'm not really going I to won. turn my mind implications of the conditions right and that's a huge problem in the defense bar right from my perspective anyway <laughs> yeah well the, you sent a very loud and clear message um through this through this decision i think <clears throat> thanks well we worked really hard to do that so i hope so <laughs> <laughs> and so going into the so he gets charged so i guess they arrest him they detain him and so what are the actual, like, if somebody's charged with, and we'll get into the specifics of the offense, if somebody's charged with a bail condition, do they just get more conditions thrown at them for that new offense now? Yeah. Yes. And so we will, yes, all of the time. And it's extremely frustrating. Um, you'll have someone who is being sentenced for a breach of bail. And what do they receive? A year of probation. <laughs> And so when you hear time and time again throughout the course of that decision, in Zora's decision, this idea that we're setting people up for failure, that's really what they're they're sort of targeting. This idea that you can't seem to abide by conditions, largely for systemic reasons, but what we'll do as a, as a way to sort of assist you and ensure this doesn't happen again, we'll just subject you to more conditions. And you can still be if you're found ultimately innocent or not guilty of the underlying charge still be convicted for the breach of bail charge yes 
Yes. So let's get it is not uncommon, I'll just, if I could just add, it's not uncommon at all to see someone that has 37 entries, and this is not an exaggeration, 37 entries on their criminal record. They'll have six or seven substantive charges, meaning true criminal offenses, the rest are breaches. Happens all of the time. Um, well, I think I saw somewhere in the decision the where I wrote it down somewhere that I had the percentage, oh, that 10%, I wrote down 10% of cases. I don't know if that's charges or convictions, but 10% of cases in Canada are now breaches of probation or similar. Yeah, it is now the most prosecuted offense in Canada. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. So... The charge here was section 145.3 of the criminal code, which is every person who is named in an appearance notice that has been confirmed by a justice or who is served with a summons and who fails without lawful excuse to appear at the time and place stated in the notice or summons, as the case may be, or to attend court in accordance with the notice or the summons is guilty of either an indictable offense liable to a term of imprisonment of not more than two years or an offense punishable on summary convictions. And for the immigration practitioners in the crowd, they'll recognize that because it's both indictable and summary, it's a hybrid offense and immigration law deems it to be indictable for the purpose of determining that someone's inadmissible to Canada. And that's also why this case, as I said at the outset, caught uh, my attention. And Section 145 has several hybrid offenses in it, including escape and being at large without excuse, failing to attend court, failing to comply with undertakings in general as part of the bail contact. Um, so the when we get into the actus reus and the mens rea, does... Does the decision apply to all of Section 145 or just 145.3? I think by necessary implication, it, it applies to all of Section 145. That's something that's going to have to be meted out in future cases, but I think as a matter of common sense, yeah, it applies to one the 145 regime. Mm. And so let's get into these two terms, criminal law 101, actus reus and mens rea. What's the, uh, what's the difference? What does that even mean? Yeah. 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 So mens rea, the mental element, actus reus, the physical act. So you can, for example, an example that we used previously, you can swat at a curtain and not know that there's a person behind the curtain. You've physically applied force to the person behind the curtain, but you didn't know a person was there. So you can't have the requisite mental element. You don't have the intention to hurt that person. Uh, that, that's the sort of, that's an example that's used in a lot of the criminal law textbooks for the first year criminal law uh, students. Yeah. So the actus reus is the action, the mens rea is the mental state. Yeah, the intention. Yeah. yeah. 
I remember from first year with all the murder examples, how the actus reus for murder, manslaughter, first degree murder sites, all the same action. It's the mens rea for the most part that distinguishes all those different offenses. Yes. And so and then- there's a distinction in mens rea between, well, subjective and objective standards. So maybe you can explain that distinction. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just sort of note as a preface that this this area, mens rea, the fault element, is really murky and, ha- and has been historically. You, you can read, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for an entire year, all the academic commentary um, regarding the distinction between these concepts and how it and its problems in terms of application for certain lines of offending. Subjective means that you will be judged on the basis of what you believed at a particular moment in time. Objective, you will be based on what a reasonable person should have believed at a particular moment in time. So an objective standard asks, what would a reasonable person do in that situation versus a subjective standard? What did you, Mr. Zora, intend at that particular moment in time? So if to, to, to maybe make that a little bit more clear, in this case, the objective standard for Zora, the, the court asked at the trial level, what would a reasonable person have done? And the, and the trial judge says, well, you know, it behooves a person who's placed on bail to ensure that they make all you know reasonable efforts to comply. So the reasonable person would have um, had his bedroom closer to the door. The reasonable person um, would have had these sort of secondary checks in place to ensure that he wouldn't miss the doorbell. That's what a reasonable person would do. This was what the judge said. So this is what the trial judge said at the very first stage of Mr. Zora's proceedings. It was, what would a reasonable person have done in that, in that set of circumstances? And we said, well, no, no, no. I, I wasn't trial counsel, but the trial counsel was effectively saying, no, 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 it's not about what a reasonable person would have done. You've got to ask Mr. Zora, like, did Mr. Zora really intend not to answer the door? Was that his objective to sort of evade police? And that's the question. Because I think after he misses it, he moves his bedroom and then sets up some sort of an audio visual system to make sure that he doesn't miss the pots again. The thing yeah. that I don't understand with this case is, like, what if they're just asleep? Yeah. Or what if they're in the shower? Or yeah. what if they're using the toilet? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, especially like, because it's after 1030 at night. Like, what What if they're asleep? It just kept going through my mind as I'm reading this uh, decision. And so there's the dispute then of whether this is what, the, what Mr. Zora intended and what the reasonable person, quote unquote, the reasonable person would have done. Yes. Uh, I still think the reasonable person would have been asleep. But what, yeah. uh, so what did the Supreme Court say? Well, I'll, I'll tell you that um, Justice Maldaver had the same sort of, made the same sort of assumptions that you made when he was reading through the factums and he made that known, you know, during uh, the course of oral submissions, like saying exactly that. Like what, what if, I mean, people would be sleeping, they'd be using the washroom or maybe showering or how do we, 
how do we sort of grapple with that and assign criminal liability in that context? But um, now I forgot the, the secondary part of the question. So tell me again. Oh, just what is the, as a result, I guess as a result of the decision, what is the, uh, the standard now? Subjective, very clearly, loud and clear, subjective. So they're saying trial judges, when we are evaluating this offense and we're assigning criminal liability, you need to be asking nothing less than what was in the mind of the accused. And you absolutely do not in any circumstance under the Section 145 regime start asking questions about this hypothetical reasonable person. And it's apparently the same for breach of probation. That's the same standard. It's subjective. That's a really interesting question. The ambiguity that we saw with 145 across the country, we see the same ambiguity with uh, probation offenses. We do have, however, uh, a Supreme Court of Canada decision that's dated, um, Doherty, that tells us we should have a subjective form of mens rea for probation-related offenses, but that's kind of been lost in translation uh, in the last several years. So it will be interesting to see what courts do with the breach of probation offenses uh, in light of Zora. Hmm. Have you attended any bail hearings, I guess by Zoom or however they're done now, since uh, this decision? Lots. Has it yeah. had an impact at the bail hearing level? Sometimes. Um, up until yesterday, I would have said yes, and it's fantastic. <laughs> However, yesterday I received a reminder that we don't always absorb and apply our Supreme Court's uh, pronouncements the way that we that we should. Hmm. So and I think I think the Supreme. Court, sorry, go ahead. Well, what types of changes, except for that, whatever ha what happened yesterday, what type of changes have there uh, been? There, there certainly now is a reluctance on the part of the prosecution to proceed with formal breach charges. So that's been very um, positive. We're seeing less um, Section 145 offenses on our daily court lists. Uh, there is also um, more consideration going into uh, the crafting of conditions of bail. And we, we now have in, in the COVID times, it's interesting because I can hear other counsel and other matters um, conduct their bail hearings and Zora is being relied on um, as a foundation for defense counsel to say, no, 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 Mr. X should be released on an undertaking full stop. We don't need conditions on Mr. X. So we, we are seeing it's early days, but we are seeing the sort of practical effects. Um, I'm not entirely optimistic that, that this is going to forever change the process because I, I don't know how closely this, uh, you've had, you know, you've read the decision, but they did sort of mention that they sent a pretty clear message in Antic. It's not always being followed. Yeah. And that's also raised in oral submissions. The, 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 the question was asked, you know, are, are the pronouncements in Antic being followed? And Antic just essentially said something similar, which is, look, we've got to be really careful about these conditions that we're crafting. And after immediately after Antic, we certainly were seeing um, more consideration. But over time, uh, we sort of fall into the same trap of just defaulting to what what it is we used to do. Let's make let's let um, Sarah just summarize what 
are the key takeaways um, from the Zora decision? Because we all have had the benefit of reading the decision, but I think perhaps for our listeners to just understand um, what were the what were the key takeaways for you and for practitioners? From a purely legal perspective, subjective mens rea applies to section 145. Right. From a practical perspective, the prosecution stop pursuing breach charges unless you must do it as a last resort. Third, courts, when you are crafting conditions of release, you have to understand who the offender is and all justice system participants have a role to play in that analysis. Those are the three takeaways, I would say. Okay. Um, and then just also for the benefit of our listeners is that this decision came down on the 18th of June. Um, and so I kind of wonder like when you're saying that you had that uptick of more positive decisions, do you think that that was related to the Zora decision or do you think that that could perhaps have been just more due to like social distancing and them just not wanting to send officers out and all of that sort of thing? Do you have any clear <laughs> sense of whether or not this was actually jurisprudentially motivated or... That's an interesting question because in our, like in the immigration world, the Canada Border Services Agency has put basically a moratorium on deportations slash removals because yeah. in part, I think they don't want officers going to physically interact with people. Is it the yeah. same? Like, I guess what, so I'm going to be optimistic what? and say it's, uh, <laughs> say no, it's, it's Zora, but yeah. It should be. I mean, it was yeah. so absolutely clear what the directive was. Um, but I, I think I'm a pessimist by nature and <laughs> optimist only that, when proven. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of room for that view. <laughs> yeah, they're like just as uh, the, the most shocking thing, I guess, for me was just the 10 percent are 10 percent of the criminal cases now are. As you saw, I, a spiral or a circle of breaches of undertaking. Yes. Yeah. Well, I just think that this is so timely because this whole notion of like kind of, um, you know, abuse of police powers is so topical. Um, but I think that this decision just provides a really excellent example of how people should be looking at how this is such a systemic issue and this much resource is going into this kind of monkey business of monitoring people who have not been found guilty of anything. Yeah, yeah, Ex very well said. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. Yeah. Conditions vary if it's someone's first charge versus subsequent charge, or is it almost automatic now, like this is what we're imposing? That's an interesting question. I, I think I'll be totally, I'll be totally blunt. I think that there's a race-based distinction. Yeah. I think that if you're dealing with an Indigenous offender, for example, there are a lot of assumptions that the prosecution and uh, members of the judiciary will make. And those assumptions tend to motivate a very robust 
bail order. That doesn't surprise me in the least. In a way, I feel like it sort of operates in the same way when they're assessing flight risk in the immigration context. Um, You know, I wouldn't want to be somebody who was not wealthy or not white Um, when they're making a flight risk decision. um, You know, it does... You know, if you're living in a fancy house in a good neighborhood and, you know, you speak English as a first language, I just, you know, call it a hunch and whatever. But it's just what you see time and again is that um, the more sort of foreign, the more, um, the more, like, the less you have those, like, typical trappings of wealth and establishment, the more they will go to flight risk. And so I get it. You know, you don't have a house that they can come and find you at, things that tie you to the ground. But at the same time, it is still race and opportunity-based, right? Absolutely. And, and it's, it's interesting how we evaluate dangerousness in that context, mm-hmm. you know? And what it ultimately means is, oh, you're, you're uh, poor, you've got mental illness, you are a person that struggles with addiction issues, oh, you're probably really dangerous. Yeah. So that's really the underlying message. Yeah. Like, is it just, so are they just, will the police just drive into a reservation on a nightly basis, going to whatever houses are on their list to knock at, or? Yes, yes, and it causes such a sort of deterioration of that social fabric for reasons that, um, Deanna, I think you previously mentioned, you're, you're building these communities who are over-policed, over-surveilled, and it has, uh, you know, social and economic consequences. It, it, it quite um, literally, you know, starts to destroy people's lives. You said it too, um, like, uh, over-surveilled, but they're also like historically traumatized by the same group of law enforcement officials. So it's sort of like the idea that we treat these things as being historical, um, historical trauma, they're actually ongoing and the, the prevalence, because I think we've got the stat on how many uh, ongoing court proceedings are now bail violations. But when you look at the, the percentage of, prosecuted persons who belong to Aboriginal or First Nations communities or um, racialized populations, uh, you you kind of have to put those things together and not put your head in the sand about it. Yes, yes. And I think there's a reluctance to call that out. I think, think, you know, on the part of of defense lawyers and uh, other justice system participants, um, you know, Native court workers I see having um, a really unique role in this process where, you know, they should have the confidence, defense counsel should have the confidence to to sort of call that correlation out as we see it. Because I don't don't necessarily believe that it's always intentional, but these are the the sort of unconscious biases that we... um, you know, we're hearing a lot about in, in the media lately that really manifest in this kind of context. Yeah, I think that there is, and we've been talking about this a fair bit on the podcast, is that there's this kind of intellectual revolution going on. And this is the opportunity to really seize upon it and be like, you know, let's not be judgy here. Let's just like, let's just call it out and actually put it up front. And that's what's going to go on trial, not, not these you know, not not keeping these biases under wraps. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. 
I think that's all I have on Zora. Hmm. Um, yeah, it was super fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's, yeah, like I, I thought it was just fascinating, just like that. In reading the, uh, and I guess you see it a bit in immigration, but it was in the context of the sheer number of conditions put on people for an indeterminate time was just shocking. Yeah. I said this to the two of you before we started recording, but um, one part of this that really uh, spoke to me is the way that the department has used um, the powers to find somebody inadmissible for having committed an act outside of Canada. And this is one um, arena where the closest um, sort of intersectionality between criminal law and immigration law um, occurs because essentially what can happen is that an immigration officer can find a person criminally inadmissible for an incident that the officer believes to be a criminal act and all they need is reasonable grounds to believe that is a criminal act so it's not even the criminal standard that gets applied but um, this reasonable grounds kind of standard and in this context they often will ask the applicant what happened and sometimes they'll get police reports and sometimes they'll get you know whatever records are available and then they make a unilateral decision about their their guilt or innocence and that is where their their immigration like severe immigration consequences flow from that and so this whole discussion that we've had in the context of Zora about mens rea versus actus reus, um, mens rea versus actus reus, I, I've tried putting that forward to immigration officers in the past. And in my view, they just don't get it. And so the idea of having committed an offense in fact and having committed an offense in intent is just a completely not culled area of the immigration law at all and i see it sometimes in cases where it's like bigamy offenses like in countries where divorce doesn't exist and somebody not knowing that this person was married they marry that other person and then they are charged that they they come at them with a bigamy offense or a perjury offense where they didn't realize that the affidavit that they signed was false because they actually believed the the, the trueness of that affidavit things like that and um without that nuance um these decisions are so um, terrifying. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, this is really what um, what this case came down to was the importance of of intention when you're looking at criminal liability, and it's equally so when looking at immigration consequences. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the other part that I found really super interesting um, was just the way that the charter was looked at in the Zora decision in terms of the way that it kind of oriented to like a purposive approach yeah. to um, to the bail provisions. Um, anyways, I don't know whether or not you just had some thoughts about whether or not that was unique in the criminal context or if that's pretty um, inherent to the way that courts are looking at the criminal scheme in the context of charter litigation. So if I understand your question correctly, are, are, are courts considering, are they taking a purposive view of um, our charter when when litigating criminal matters generally? Is that the 
Yeah, like it's kind of, I mean, I was just, I'm always sort of shocked. Um, Catherine Dovern, who's like one of our kind of key immigration scholars, wrote a paper about like how the charter has failed foreign nationals. (laughs) And I think that that really speaks to what's happened in the immigration context. Like the courts just are kind of like, well, you know, you don't have a right to certain things as a a newcomer to Canada. Um, I've always felt like, you know, um, criminal law would be, the other side where there was always this very strong framework provided by the charter. And I wonder from the perspective of a criminal litigator, whether you feel that way, that always the charter will bring us back to the right way of looking at things. Is that how you feel about it or not? Uh, I think the charter ultimately brings us back to the right way of looking at things, but most, all of the sort of substantive issues that surface in Zora surface in these really sort of busy, chaotic provincial courtrooms. And we don't think about the charter. Mm. We don't think about society's fundamental values. We think about the 34 matters that we have on the list, the judge who's pretty keen to get home, um, and the accused that's, you know, really, you know, dope sick, it just needs to get out. And so Mm. I think ultimately, you know, we do end up considering those really important frameworks that derive from um, the charter. But we don't do that at the get-go. And that's the problem. Yeah. And you're mostly involved in appeals, you said, I think, at the outset. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I I wouldn't say mostly. I'd say at at this point in time, I have, you know, sort of 50% on the ground, you know, busy trial practice. And then depending on the the time of year, about 50% appellate practice. Right. And at what point in the Zora... Um, like line of cases, did the constitutional question get raised? I don't. I don't know that it's that it's entirely correct to to um, frame the question as being a constitutional question. I think um, the, the the charter was certainly something that was discussed at the Supreme Court level, but the. The, the fundamental sort of tenets of the charter weren't a live issue at the Supreme Court of BC, at the BC Court of Appeal. What was front and center up until the Supreme Court was, um, you know, a purely sort of academic exercise about, you know, mens rea and objective and subjective levels of fault and why they matter. We kind of had to wait until we got to the Supreme Court and had the assistance of all of those interveners Mm -hmm. to really dive in. And that was also a strategic decision. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. This collaborative litigation is doing really, really amazing things. I'm finding. Oh yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're coming up on an hour. Um, and I think we'll wrap it up there. If people want to get in touch with you or have questions about this decision or need a criminal defense lawyer on the Island where, <laughs> How should they uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, it's my last name, Runyon, R-U-N-Y-O-N, at marionandcompany.ca. And that's in Campbell River? The physical office is in Campbell River, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Yeah, thanks Uh, for having me. Thanks. uh, Yeah, it's been such a pleasure. (laughs) All right, have a good one. Thanks, all. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye.